Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Tom Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Securities, talked to us about the new... Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Tom Caldwell, chairman of Caldwell Securities, talked to us about the prospects, economic prospects for Canada for 2020. Masi Alinajad is an activist, a journalist who in 2009 left Iran, and uh, she has also spoken with family members of Canadians who lost their lives on Flight 752. We spoke with uh, Masi Alinajad about that. Cindy Boren from the Washington Post, sports writer, on the Houston Astros 2017 World Series cheating scandal. Alex Pearson, my colleague from Chorus Radio Ontario, on the Teachers Union's job action coming up this week. And Mike Smith joined us from uh, the Vancouver province on the UN falsely accusing Canada of racism, as well, the top job for the Conservative Party of Canada and the energy minister for the province of Alberta. Sonia Savage on the Supreme Court decision that said no to British Columbia's legislation to block the Trans Mountain extension. All of that on the podcast today. Tom Caldwell is the chairman of Caldwell Investment Management. It's caldwellinvestment.com. Mr. Caldwell's past governor of the Toronto Stock Exchange, TSE, also recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Gold Medal for his activities on behalf of Canadian veterans. He's a member of the Order of Canada. And I want to mention this. He received uh, Her Majesty's Diamond Jubilee for his efforts on behalf of the disadvantaged. To me, Tom Caldwell is always a voice of reassurance. And uh, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. It, It is an interesting time that we're living in with so many developments taking place politically, economically, and we're in January. We're looking to 2020. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you, Roy. Nice to chat with you. Let's start with the uh, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement, or NAFTA 2.0. And now that the U.S. Senate has uh, has signed on to this, where does COSMA, where does the agreement most benefit this country? I think the main thing is it removes uncertainty to some degree. In that, you know, dealing with America is, is sometimes quite challenging because if, if there's a game going on and you're beating them, you must be cheating and continually they would uh, raise objections, whether it be in softwood, lumber, or, or anything else you'd like to name. The unfortunate part of this new deal is it does uh, defang the, uh, the resolution mechanism to some degree. But the interesting part is it's all politics now. Remember when President Trump was running, he was saying, this is the worst deal America's ever done in the history of the country, blah, blah, blah. Very, very extreme rhetoric. This new deal is only marginally different from the old deal. The good part of it is we get back to living our life and uh, hopefully hopefully having some clarity. Um, we gave up a little bit. I don't know the full details of it, but uh, uh, I think it's, it's better to have something than nothing. It's a start. The real target has always been Mexico, not, not Canada. And then there's the manufacturing of automobiles in Mexico, which are very efficient, good plants, hardworking people. Um, and but they can produce cars way cheaper than we can. But remember, robotics is taking over a big deal of that uh, manufacturing base now. So uh, I think it's good. It removes uncertainty. And the proof is in the in the uh, in the waiting to see what how it all is applied. I suppose. Well, they're very good at thickening up the border, if you will. We can have an agreement, and then all of a sudden you end up starting to get delays at the border, and that can undercut supply chain because so much of cross-border manufacturing is just-in-time deliveries, that those taillights have to arrive on that day when they're to be installed in that particular line of automobiles. So that's the thing to watch, the thickening of the border, which is, is uh, something our, our American cousins have been proficient at. Tom, one of the issues that we uh, talk about in this country a great deal, and we've had to confront in Canada, is the trade uh, arrangements and trade reality between provinces or among provinces. Absolutely. Right? I mean, why do we have trade barriers between and among ourselves? But we do. Well, as a lay person, I frankly don't understand it other than its provincial petulance. I mean, yes, we've always had a dichotomy of uh, opinions uh, between most of Canada and Quebec very, very often, whether it be in pipelines or 
or even they're putting their oar in the water about uh, things that don't even pertain to the province of Quebec. But it, it, it's, it's, it's true right across the country. Every province is trying to protect its turf, but each province in Canada isn't a big enough economic unit to build a self-sustaining massive economy. We have to be, we're in competition with everybody else, not with each other, and, and we have to get serious about building an efficient economy, and that means getting rid of any and all interprovincial trade barriers. Well, when we look at uh, just yesterday, the Supreme Court of Canada, dismissal of the B.C. law, and British Columbia's claim the province should have the right to decide what passes through the TMX pipeline when it crosses the province. In other words, they were going to just block the pipeline. Supreme Court says no. Um, The Alberta Energy Minister, and, and there's been friction between the two provinces, as we all know, the Alberta Energy Minister, who will be joining us in, uh, well, less than an hour's time, said it was a slapdown for British Columbia. And Premier Kenny has said that, uh, you know, he sees this as a great year for 2020. So we have these two provinces side by side who have been antagonistic toward each other because of Trans Mountain Extension for several years now. This is the kind of situation that doesn't benefit the country when the two provinces are going at each other. Maybe the Supreme Court of Canada decision will, in fact, uh, clear the, the muddy waters and clear the pipeline and give some real economic stimulus. Well, I, I hope it does, because basically if you look at Alberta and British Columbia, you have two almost mental mindsets in the two provinces. You have this environmental uh, and, and in some degrees uh, indigenous uh, pressure group uh, lobbies. That and, and again, I, I personally, I mean, I know I'm cynical, but I keep thinking some of these lobbies are funded by U.S. energy companies uh, because they benefit from that blockage. And you have Alberta that has a tremendous uh, resource base, but you can't starve out one province just because of the proclivities of another province. And finally, finally, the, the federal government is saying, listen, this is insanity. We're not building a pipeline to put popcorn through it. Uh, you know, this is, this is crazy. And, and I, I'm glad to see the feds uh, at the judicial level, certainly not at the governmental level, but at the judicial level, standing up for rationality. How much concern is there, uh, should there be, that TMX is not really fully green-lighted? The federal government has said they're not going to sell it until, uh, until they can you know, do it with, without worries. We have eco-groups still appealing uh, to the federal court, and hereditary First Nations chiefs oppose both TMX and the BC LNG, uh, Liquid National Natural Gas Project. What do these two projects alone mean to the Canadian economy overall? Well, we're late to the party in the LNG. That's a tremendous, a tremendous uh, boon in terms of jobs and earnings for Canada. And theoretically, these environmental groups say, oh, no, this is environmentally not sound. Listen, it makes far more sense for us to export LNG to China and other countries that are currently using coal. That helps the world environmental balance tremendously. We're really talking about money. That's all we're talking about. And, and uh, you know, frankly, I always keep joking, if there's anything worse than the tyranny of the majority, it's a tyranny of the minority. And frankly, many of the indigenous groups, and many are supportive of this too, so it's, 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 it's not uniform. But the ones that are opposing it, it's just about the money. We're going to be just talking in a form of uh, blackmail based on guilt and, and, and whatever. But we have to get on with building a country. We can't fight this tune anymore. And listen, we're all concerned about the environment. Some of us have raised, this to the, raised it to the element of a religion, but all of us feel we should be doing a better job. Let's get on with, with the good versus the perfection, because perfection will destroy the economy. You know, we also have the uh, chair of the United Nations Anti-Racism Committee calling for the BC LNG pipeline to be shut down because he said... Uh, uh, there was opposition by five hereditary chiefs. What he didn't know, what the U.N. chair didn't know, was that all 20 First Nations on the pipeline route support the project. And he said, essentially, well, uh, we don't do investigations. I didn't know that, and we don't investigate. Don't. But, but that, they, was, that, was, that was an embarrassment. I mean, it? it shows that in many areas the U.N. is just a joke. I mean, when you had Libya at one point in time in charge of human rights, I mean, it, it really undercuts any kind of veracity they have as a as a, a body but they did no investigation they did no inquiries they did nothing they came up with something popular they might have caught from a letter somebody sent to them or or some publication i mean heaven knows what so uh let's assume for a moment that tmx goes ahead 
and it's cleared up quickly, and it becomes a very functioning pipeline with, uh, with uh, product flowing to Tidewater. And the LNG pipeline moves forward expeditiously. Let's just, let's just say that. What does that do as far as international investment in this country is concerned? Because I, I saw reports uh, over the last several years. I've seen reports of international investors saying, we are not going to put money into Canada if you can't get your energy sector squared away. Canada is viewed with a degree of cynicism uh, when it comes to hard money building projects. You don't know whether it's going to get approved. You don't know if it's going to get delayed for 10 or 20 years. And payback time is a very important part of the equation of investing. And frankly, even if we do it now, there's been, I think, damage done in terms of the world perception of Canada as a destination for hard infrastructure projects because we have so many pressure groups that are that want a piece of the action, if you will, and are prepared to do anything under in, you know, anything possible to make sure they get a piece of the action or just abstract it and and, uh, and kibosh it in the first place. So Canada is, has got a little problem here, and it's not going to be a perception that we correct quickly. Uh, it's something that, you know, we have to get back in the world stage in a more serious non-finger-wagging uh, manner and uh, deal with becoming a hospitable environment that we want to create jobs, we want to growth, we want to be a factor in the world stage. Uh, we've gone backwards in that regard. Tom, please hold on. Uh, we'll come back with Tom Caldwell, the uh, chairman of Caldwell Investment Management. They're at caldwellinvestment.com, and we'll talk to Mr. Caldwell about the uh, economic outlook for Canada in 2020 as far as... Uh, Jobs are concerned as far as, you know, there's lots of talk about a, an impending recession. How concerned should we be about that? Um, also, this country, uh, I want to go back to the point about this country being a divided nation. Uh, an Angus Reid National Survey has shown that very clearly. We'll be talking about that in detail tomorrow. And uh, also tomorrow, joining us will be Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, who has uh, worried about the, um, the national unity issue in, in Canada. And uh, two years ago on this program, actually said when uh, Premier Horgan of British Columbia was 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 talking about um, shutting down TMX, and Premier Mo said, "If one premier, I'm paraphrasing, if one premier of one province can make a decision like that, the question is, do we have a country?" When we look at the division that uh, that exists in Canada. We have Premier Legault in Quebec saying no pipelines uh, through his province, but happy to get the uh, the equalization payments. And uh, we have uh, tanker traffic legislation, Bill C-69 or 48, one or the other, um, in, in off the British Columbia coast. No such legislation on the Atlantic coast. We have the Trudeau government imposing a carbon tax on provinces that are arguing all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. You've got six premiers arguing against Trudeau. This is really a witch's brew, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think, if I, I mean, I, I don't mean to presume to speak for Canadians, but I think there are a lot of Canadians that are hoping, indeed maybe praying for or hankering for, a strong, mature government in Ottawa addressing the real issues of our country and our time, as opposed to just politically expedient, politically correct, popular, um, um, addressing the needs of special interest groups. We've got to grow up and run governments. I mean, the world we live in is a lot tougher than playing the silly bear games that, that our politicians, uh, particularly in Ottawa, seem to be doing. We need leadership. I don't care whether which party it comes from, but we need to have some leadership here. This, this, uh, Ottawa is really letting the country down because it starts at the top, all leadership does, that if a province is going to object for something, people have to get downside. One province can't beggar another uh, if, it's, if it's not reasonable, if, if there's something that's incorrect or just purely uh, bullheadedness. So the, the central government is going to say, okay, you do this, we've got to take a look at interest equalizations. Or special interest groups that are receiving federal funds, 
If they're hurting the overall development of the economy, they must be given downside or whatever. I don't know what the policy should be, but we need stronger leadership in our country. That's the starting point, in my opinion. Are we staring a recession in the face in 2020? We're always going to have recessions. I mean, the economy has been strong. Remember, the economy is fueled by extremely low interest rates. And we've got to a point, particularly in America, where governments can't afford to have interest rates go up. You think they have deficits now. You know, if you double the interest rate, wow, I mean, that would just tear apart budget uh, budgets in, in America and in Canada. So even the governments have become addicted to low interest rates. So my opinion is that at some point in Canada, in Canada and North America, well, we're, going to, we're going to see economic slowdown. It's quite amazing, though, that economies, particularly the U.S., has stayed so strong against so much in the way of geopolitical uncertainty in 2019. And it's still been the low interest rates, uh, low interest rate environments that have sort of fueled it. I think we got some time yet. I think we'll, I think 2020 will be a, a reasonable economic uh, year. Uh, some growth unemployment is still quite low. Uh, you're going to see strains, but typically they do well in election years because it's in the interest, um, particularly of uh, candidates in the U.S., to have strong economies when they're all running for election. So I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm an incurable optimist, Roy, as you well know. Uh, we're going to have slowdowns, and for me as a, as a market trader, slowdowns, they just present opportunities to me. Tom, thank you very much for the time. I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. So great, nice to, great to start to the year. All the best. Thank you. Tom Caldwell, the uh, chairman of uh, Caldwell Investment Management. He does a tremendous amount of good in this country. Uh, there's a lot to, that we have to address as far as unity in Canada is concerned. And a lot of that affects our economic well-being, jobs, um, moving ahead fiscally, uh, intelligently, and making life better for people. That's what it's all about. Uh, my guest is a journalist who interviewed members of Canadian families who lost family members in the Iranian shooting down of UIA Flight 752. My guest is Masi Alina Jad, she's an Iranian journalist and activist. She left Iran in 2009 following the national uprising. She's the founder of White Wednesdays, the movement to end compulsory wearing of hijabs by Iranian women. Three of her family have been arrested by Iranian authorities, and that has been condemned by Amnesty International. Ms. Alina Jad broadcasts uh, for Voice of America and is the author of The Wind in My Hair and My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. Ms. Alina Jad, it's a pleasure to have you uh, join us on the program. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me. You spoke with Canadians who lost family members in the Iranian missile strike against Ukrainian International Flight 752, and, and you wrote that these families are experiencing difficulty with the Tehran regime. What's happening to them? These families who I have been talking to them, they are in a very serious pressure. First of all, I have spoken with a family uh, telling me that the security forces went to their house and warned them, if you do any interview with media outside Iran, Canadian media broadcasting, then you won't be able to get the body of your beloved one back. And another family actually told me that they asked them to give an interview to Iranian national television and saying that they praise the supreme leader of Iran, then they will be able to bury the body of their loved one. And I actually talked to the relative of uh, Amir Hossein Saidinia. The reason that I, t I have talked to them because I have received a video from them, the mother in the video screaming desperately, shouting and saying exactly the same word that I'm going to share it with you. Mr. Prime Minister of Canada, hear me, hear me. I am the mother who uh, lost her son and my son left Iran to go to Canada to be safe. Now you are the only one that you can help us. Canada, help us. This is what exactly you hear from the video. Then I talked to the relative. The relative told me that the Iranian national television went to their house. They actually 
ask the father and grandmother to sit and talk with Iranian national television praising the supreme leader of Iran. And what happened after that, the grandmother, which you can see her face on Iranian national television, saying nothing, just keeping silent and sitting there in, the, in front of the camera. But she took to the street and is screaming again and saying that my son, my grandson got killed, but not by mistake. They killed my son. So, of course, this family are under pressure. They, they don't even allow them to mourning themselves. I receive another video, which I really beg you to go and translate this video. In that video, the government put a fence around the body of, um, of one of the Iranian Canadians in Hamadan city. And the mother is not even allowed to get closer to the body of her son to say goodbye to him. And what we hear in this video, one of the female security forces trying to calm this mother down, telling her, Yes, you're right. We understand your pain. Pain. What do you need? The mother scream and say that, you know, I don't need you to do anything. The only thing that I need you is just do nothing and leave us alone. I saw that video. I didn't understand what was being said in Farsi, but I, I saw that video on your Twitter account, and it's deeply disturbing. Yeah. So just as the Iranian regime uh, denied and said it was impossible, that was the word they used, I believe, that it was impossible, that uh, one of their missiles, and now we know, uh, I think, relatively, with relative certainty, there were two, that it was impossible that an Iranian missile would, had, had, had shot down the passenger plane, just as they said uh, they, they, they lied then, and now they're manipulating the families of the victims. Exactly. What bothers me, when I shared the videos, I not, I, I'm getting attacked, not only from Iranian government, from the lobbyists outside Iran saying that do not put pressure on the family, do not make them to uh, give interview because you're going to put them under pressure. But the thing is, people in Iran, the family know the risk and they're trying to share their voices. And um, you have to go to social media. Some of the fathers and mothers of these people or the relatives, they're writing and saying that we are like hostage. I'm going to give you another example. Kiana, she's a young student Canadian, in Canadian University. And she um, actually, she has a lot of dreams. And you can hear in another video that the father calling the Revolutionary Guard and saying that you killed my daughter. My daughter had dreams. My daughter had a lot of hopes. You shot her hopes. And now um, you saying that, uh, forgive us, you make an apology. We don't need your apology. You Ma killed my daughter. Ms. Alina Judd, are the families uh, of the people, the Canadians you spoke with, who lost loved ones on flight 752, are they comfortable with you speaking about this publicly? Um, they are comfortable to speak about this in, during the time when they're mourning about it, but they are not allowed to give interview. That is why we try to translate their, vo their words while they're being filmed by, by the other relatives. And that is why I want the Canadian media to understand that this is, this is a historical time. This is very important. You know, I admire Justin Trudeau because he became now Honestly, a hero for a lot of families who never had a chance to see their leaders mourning with them, crying with them. But we want, I mean, Justin Trudeau to actually take a strong position and, and, and take an action and saying that we want to talk with the families in Canadian media, in Canadian independent media broadcasting. And why I'm saying that? Because the foreign minister of Canada, when I shared a video, uh, he retweeted me. He thanked me. He said that he's willing to help the family. And what happened after that, the family is not even talking to me or they are not even live on social media. Why? Because they have received a lot of threats that you shouldn't talk to media outside Iran. But I want the foreign minister of Canada understand that when he has a meeting with Iranian foreign minister, he has to directly talk about these families who became like a hostage in the hand of 
Iranian government. So there Otherwise, has to there has to be there has to be very emphatic pushback to the Iranian regime about this entire tragic situation and emphatic pushback in order to get proper compensation. I mean, you can't compensate somebody for the loss of a loved one. You can't do that. But to provide them with uh, some, at least some monetary, some meaningful monetary support is significantly important. Could you hold on a minute? I want to talk to you some more. Would you be all right to do that? Sure. Okay. My guest is Masi Alina Jad. She is uh, Iranian journalist and activist left the country in 2009 and the founder of the White Wednesdays, uh, hashtag White Wednesdays. We'll talk to her, uh, Ms. Alina Jad about that in just a moment. And the author of The Wind in My Hair and My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. Ms. Alina Jad, would you just please talk to us about the uh, what you know about and what you, you communicate with people in Iran on a regular basis, I know. Uh, what, do you, what can you tell us about the protests that took place um, once Iranian, the Iranian people found out about the shooting down of, of Flight 752 and the protests that took place in November and December where unarmed protesters were shot and killed? Um, unfortunately, we, the people in Iran, do not have any freedom to protest peacefully. So the answer is very clear. The security forces opened fire at uh, the protesters in Iran protests in November. And what happened, according to Reuters, 1,500 people got killed. 7,000 people right now are in prison. And we have no news from them because they don't have media inside Iran. Can you believe me? You cannot hear a single story about any family who got killed in Iranian media inside. That is why we people of Iran envying at Canada, watching, I mean, all the TV channels, radio stations, newspapers, they are talking about Iranian Canadians. They are showing their true pictures, the true, you know, uh, photos of them without censoring them, without putting any kind of pressure on them. But in Iran, right now that I'm talking to you, uh, one of the protesters' father is in prison. Puya Bakhtiari was a symbol of Iran protest who got shot in the head who got killed immediately. And then what happened, the family asked for public gathering, public service. Then the government went to their family. At least 11 um, uh, family members got arrested in one day. They got released, all of them, but the father and two uncles are in prison. Right let, me now. Ask you, let me ask you this. When we see, we see massive gatherings of Iranians who s- appear to be supporting the regime. I also saw on, on Twitter a video that you posted of a massive lineup of buses. And the, the case that is made in the video is these buses are used to, to bus people to, to the demonstration supporting the regime. But are they, is, it, is it fair to say that there's a, there's a great deal of support for the regime within Iran as well? That's a very good question. And I'm happy that finally we got the chance in Canadian media you know, American media to talk about the truth behind the regime organized gathering. You know, let me tell you something. The main question that all the journalists outside Iran, all the actress and well-known activists, human rights organizations should ask is this, that why people can get together in the street, like showing their feeling to the regime or Qasem Soleimani, uh, the gen- Iranian general who got killed recently, but the family who peacefully take to the street to mourning for their own people or mourning for these 176 people who got killed in the right. I, 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 I don't. I'm, I'm only going to stop you because we're running. You know, we only have about three minutes, three and a half minutes left. Is there significant support for the regime within Iran? Look, any like any dictators. Mm-hmm. Around the world, in the history, they have their own supporters, especially those who have oil, who have money, who have prison, who have, you know, guns and bullets, and they can easily oppress it's their own nation. It's just normal. Of course, they have their own supporters. Now, I saw something that you, I saw something that you posted as well. Sorry to cut you off, but I saw something that you posted. Uh, Iran State TV's anchor resigns. This is a... Thir- an anchor resigned saying 
The quote is, it was very hard for me to believe the killing of my countrymen. I apologize for lying to you on TV for 13 years. What happened to that person? This is heartbreaking. This is very heartbreaking. This is the true news in Iran, which we don't hear it much from outside this, this was, the this world. Was a, this was from a state television broadcaster, right? Yes. And there are two, actually, TV presenters. They resigned because of the, this, you know, brutality of the government. The okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this again to you, and I apologize, but we have about a minute and a half. Tell me your story. What's, 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 what's your story? And, and your, your family members have been arrested, no? Yeah. Yes. You know, I'm very shy to talk about my own brother who is in prison right now. The Revolutionary Guard arrested him to punish me, to keep me silent. When I see that right now, you know, to almost 2,000 people got killed less than two months in Iran. It's not easy for me to talk only about my brother. Let me tell you something. One of the well-known actress in Iran, Tarane Ali Dusti, she wrote on her Facebook with six million followers saying that we are not citizens. We never been citizens. We are the, cap- we are the prisoners here. We are like a hostage here in Iran. And that actually shows you it's not only about my brother. They took the whole nation hostage. You are not even allowed to be your true self. You don't what, have free election. What, in, free 30, in, in 30 seconds, what does Mr. Trudeau, what do other Western governments have to do? What I want him to do to understand that Iranian people do not have any media, free election. These governments, Zarif, Rouhani, they don't represent Iranian people because we don't have free election. So consider that Iranian people are like hostage. This is not me saying that. Look, my brother is in prison without doing anything. He mm-hmm. was not even involved in politics. Yeah. They arrested him to keep me silent. Why? Because I give voice to voiceless people. I have 4 million followers on my Instagram and Facebook. Why? Because people desperately sending me videos every day. My dream is to be in my own country. What I want, Justin Trudeau, don't believe that the government of Iran is going to do something for Iranian people and understand that we are suffering from a war which Iranian government opposed to its own citizens. All right, Ms. Alina Jad, I, I have to end it there simply because we have sure. run out of time this time. But I'll have you back on the program. There's no question that Western leaders have to stand up more directly and be more outspoken and, and support. When you, see, when you see unarmed protesters being shot and killed in the streets, reported by Reuters, that is that should get everyone um, deeply disturbed. And then there's Flight 752, of course, and what happened in that tragedy. Thank you for joining. Canadians as well. Canadians and Canadians, Canadians, exactly. 57. We want you to sanction the Revolutionary okay. Guard in Islamic Republic. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back. Thank you. Sure. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Masi Alina Jad. Um, she's, on, uh, she's on Twitter. It's uh, A-L-I- uh, A-L-I-N-E-J-A-D and then M-A-S-I. I want you to have a listen to about uh, 23 seconds because we timed it out. 23 seconds of the owner of the Houston Astros giving a bit of an explanation about what happened after the cheating scandal was exposed. And then we'll be speaking with Cindy Boren from the Washington Post. Have a listen. They both had responsibilities, Jeff, running the baseball operation and overseeing A.J. and all of those people associated with that. And A.J. on the bench and was aware. If you read the report, it's pretty clear. A.J. uh, didn't endorse it, and neither did Jeff. Neither one of them started this, but neither one of them did anything about it. And that's how, how we came to the conclusion. And that's as clear as the Major League Baseball response, right? Well, let's see now. $5 million fine for the Houston Astros. This is because they cheated their way to the World Series in 2017. $5 million fine for the Astros. will take some draft picks away from them. That will hurt. Uh, and we're going to suspend Hinch and we'll suspend the manager. And Lunau, the general manager, for a year. And that caused the owner to fire them. It's now gone further. Red Sox manager Alex Corda the bench coach of the Astros in 2017, and reportedly the initiator of the cheating, has lost a job in Boston. And Mets manager Carlos Beltran, about to start his career as a manager, uh, after closing out a great career as a player with the Astros in 17, was fired by the Mets. So if none of this is making sense to you, because you're not a sports fan, 
I know you don't like cheating, and that's what took place. Cindy Boren joins us from the Washington Post, sports writer, longtime sports writer, sports editor. Cindy, um, let's let's back this up a little bit, because I'm coming at it from the middle just to confuse people. That's what I do. Um, <laughs> how did this case break open? How did we find out that the Astros had been a team of cheaters that cheated their way to the World Series? Well, suspicions have been uh, talked about for a few years. Um, there was also the the sort of odd odd sign of of Astros players beating on a on a um, garbage can in the dugout. You know, uh, when they would get those signals from center field on what the next pitch was going to be. Um, you know, it just became more and more brazen, and finally, baseball, you know, realized it had to take action and and looked into it and. You know, found that it was um, rather shameless. Frankly, it was—I mean, it was—it was so outrageous and so overt that baseball had to act. I mean, you know, sports leagues like to look the other way when something like this happens, mm-hmm. and they couldn't. Well, so they—I mean, they had a—they had a, a, t- a TV monitor by the dugout, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah. so they were. <laughs> They were getting the signals, and then they 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 went from high tech to low tech and started smacking a trash can to uh, to to provide the the hitter with some sense of what may be coming from the opposing pitcher. Um, and, and and there's some question over whether uh, Jose Altuve even had a wire on. You know, you saw him uh, running the bases, and he grabbed his shirt, you know, to keep it closed so that no one would rip it off uh, after he crossed home plate. So. You know, there's that too. What a mess! Absolute mess. So, major it league, is and it's unsatisfying. <laughs> and this is a, another example in a long, long series of misfires, ethical misfires by Major League Baseball. And what do they do? What does Manfred, the commissioner, do? Finds the team five million dollars. They lose draft picks. Okay, Jeff Lunau is gone. The manager, A.J. Hinch, is gone. A lot of fans wanted him gone anyway after the way he messed up the managing of the last World Series for the Astros. But And, and Alex Cord had gone uh, from the, the, the Red Sox. He was the apparently the initiator of the cheating. And Carlos Beltran gone from the Mets. But, um, Cindy, the players, no fines, no suspension, no loss of World Series bonus money, keep their championship ring and and rings and the World Series banner continues to fly in Houston. What's up with that? It's going to be a really weird scene when they celebrate. Uh, uh, or was you know? I mean, I guess you can't sort of go back in time and uh, uh, you know say, okay, we're going to uncelebrate. You know, we're going to take down the banner. Um, the funny thing about it was most of you know the equipment was set up in Houston. And the Astros couldn't win a game at home during the World Series. So exactly. That was kind of weird. That was weird. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, it, $5 million is couch change to uh, a baseball team. Uh, the punishment really doesn't fit the crime, to, to my way of thinking. I mean, unless you strip the team of the championship, uh, really? You know, um, what's to deter them from doing it again and doing it better? You know, I mean, maybe you, maybe you think of a better way next time. And, and if you're another team, maybe you do that, too. You know, if you're thinking, hmm, well, this is where they made a mistake. We'll, you know, we'll improve on the technology. Mm-hmm. And during the seven, 2017 season, it wasn't just the Astros. The Red Sox were caught stealing signs mm-hmm. using smartphones. Yes. And, you know, it, it's one thing. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see baseball, which has always been such a, a fairly low-tech game you know only recently have analytics and other things gotten involved and you know i mean even um uh, the replay you know it it's only a recent development and now you're sort of seeing high tech invading this and it's it's sad it's you know this was a sport where okay cunning was always part of it and by cunning i mean you know if you're a base runner and you can figure out what the next pitch is going to be because you know whether the catcher's holding down you know two fingers or one or whatever um, you know, it, that's good. That's fine. But this is something else entirely. Um, you know, this is, this is, it's out and out cheating. Um, do you think this is an endemic, not just in Major League Baseball, but in, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but do you think it exists in, in, in greater, uh, instances numerically <laughs> than, than, than we in, in other major sports, more so than we might imagine? Well, 
uh, people who are not fans of the New England Patriots would tell you it, it exists in New England. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the probably technology has led people to, to do things they wouldn't have done in the past. I also think people, you know, now you can do anything and get a, as long as you get away with it, you know, and you're not put in jail. What's the deterrence? You know, I mean, a fine. Well, none. There's no. There's just no shame. You know, no one has any shame. So why would you not? Why would you not cheat? And you know, the only problem with cheating is if you don't win the championship, right? That yeah. seems to be the attitude. Well, I I, I tweeted and I didn't tweet. I actually tweeted on it, but I also wrote my commentary on it at RoyGreenShow.com, and uh, and I said these same players who are, you know, they have their championship rings, they have their their, their World Series bonus checks, they have, uh, you know, they, they, they regard themselves as champions. They're going to be looking for applause and adulation in a couple of weeks' time at spring training. And they'll probably get it. You know, um, baseball did one thing that I thought was really interesting. You'll notice that they uh, announced the punishment on Monday, the day after the two um, NFL uh, semi. Uh, Sunday's NFL semifinal games and, you know, the other two on Saturday and on the day of the National College Football Championship game. You know, it it was designed to kind of minimize the attention that it got and it, yeah. you know, it still blew up. But, you know, it, it was kind of swept under the rug a little bit. You and I talked about this this morning off the air and I want to say something mm-hmm. that I said to you earlier. And what also concerns me greatly is the impact that this kind of situation will have on kids. These are their heroes. These are the this is what who they want to be. They want to be the athletes who are rounding the bases to win a World Series. And now these guys who cheated their way to a World Series have their rings again, have their checks, they're recognized still as champions, the banner flies on, on their stadium. What's the message to the kids? Well, you know, I guess my feeling is um you know, the message needs to come from the parents that this is not how you do it, and other people may do it that way, but there's a, a certain uh, pride in, in winning um, and competing yeah. on a level playing field. You know, you don't you don't put steroids in your body, um, and you don't, you know, you don't cheat. I mean, if you can figure out what the next pitch is going to be, that's good. Use your brain. You know, be as smart as you can be. But, you know, there's a pride to winning and winning – Fairly. You know, I just want to say this, and then I'll thank you for your time, but I, uh, I look at it this way. I think all of those players should have been suspended by Major League Baseball for one mm-hmm. season, just the way the general manager and the former general manager and the former manager of the Astros were suspended for a season. All those players should suffer a similar fate. And when it comes to the game, the first game that, that that's played in, in Minute Maid Stadium in Houston, I hope the fans turn their backs on them. They won't, but I hope they do. Anyway. Yeah, I, I don't think they will, but I, I'm with you. <laughs> Cindy, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Good talking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Cindy Boren from the Washington Post. I should have said to her, too, congratulations on winning the World Series because it really was the Montreal Expos who won the World Series, right? Because it was the Expos who went to Washington, became the Nationals. You know how it goes. The Ontario Teachers Unions engaging in job action this coming week. The Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, the Ontario English Catholics Teachers Federation, and the French Language Teachers Federation, known as AEFO, are all going to be engaged in demanding the Ford government engage them in, quote, significant talks, end quote. My friend and colleague and a host of uh, uh, her program, uh, Alex Pearson from uh, the Chorus Radio Network in Ontario, joining us from Toronto. You know, I'm such a huge fan of your work. Uh, I've, I've, I always tell you, but I'm going to tell everybody else, you are truly an outstanding journalist and broadcaster, Alex. Thanks for taking oh, time. That's very good. Well, the feeling is mutual, as you all know, so I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you. What's the backgrounder on this simultaneous and multi-pronged Ontario Teachers Union fight with the government of Premier Doug Ford? Money. 
It's about um, strong uh, arming the government. I mean, it's escalated to strike action much, much faster than we've ever seen before. It certainly didn't happen in the McGuinty-Win era when they just did work to rule campaigns. But, of course, we're into a conservative government now. And so the unions, all of them, five of them, have moved from work action and work to rule to a full-out strike action. So Monday, my little guy is going to be off and enjoying a day in the snow, I guess. He just had a PD day on Friday, which is a nice uh, four-day stretch of a, of a holiday weekend. And um, I'm told that the teachers work on PA days, although if you look at the school across the street from my house, there's never a car in sight, so they must walk to work that day. <laughs> but um, this is about strong-arming the government in a showdown about money. I uh, will never be convinced it's about the kids because if it were about the kids, they would still do work to rule and not walk out. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what about uh, the premier? Is he going to give in to the pressure of empty classrooms and maybe frustrated parents? Well, I, I, look, I think we have to step back a little bit, Roy, because a lot of spin and a lot of propaganda is now reported as truth. And, you know, the... The government's come in on the classroom size, on the e-learning, so they've given some concessions. They better not bounce or budge on the money because we don't have any money. And um, and I think, you know, this issue about classroom sizes is not necessarily true. It may be in some classes, in some areas, but a lot of the reporting on classroom sizes came in from the very first week of school when you don't actually have accurate numbers of classroom size. I know in my child's school, there are no classrooms with those kinds of numbers, and I've checked around. Um, so I don't think it's a broad, wide problem. Uh, do I think there are issues in education? Absolutely. But it can't be just staked at the foot of this government because this is decades in the making. Mm -hmm. um, and, and bottom line, if this weren't about money, Roy, they would take that off the table and only make it about classroom issues. Yeah, and, and so often, uh, maybe... Um, <laughs> Maybe all the in all my experiences with teachers strikes and and uh, and job action, Alex, it's been about money. It's always been about the money. The students are brought into the argument, and I'm go I'm going to upset mm -hmm. teachers, but it's always bottom line's always been the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been covering education union labor issues since the Mike Harris days, and it always has come down to money. They did very well with the McGinty win uh, government and pretty much got what they wanted, um, and they've become very emboldened. And I don't actually get the sense it is all teachers who want this. I hear from a lot of teachers that, A, they don't want to talk, uh, you know, against the, the, the union because they become, um, you know, an outcast. They get bullied. But a lot of teachers I speak to just want this thing to go away uh, and would be happy to take the 1%. But of course, to take that 1%, uh, the unions, certainly at the, the high school level, the big OSSTF union, this would set a precedent that would never do because they truly believe that they deserve 2% per year every year, which is absurd. Who gets 2% every year uh, plus all the benefits, the pensions? And the big one, Roy, sick days. I mean, you just heard about this report in the Globe and Mail with all the sick days that are being taken. $650 million is spent by the province, by the taxpayers, to cover off just sick days, which aren't actually sick days or entitlements. That's how they're treated. The $650 million spent on bringing in, um, you know, a, a teacher to help out or cover the shift off, there's your raise. There's that 1% more you want. And then we're throwing that money away on, on covering off uh, staff absences. It's, it's ludicrous. Yeah, it is. And I want to go back to something you said earlier. We can't afford it. The province of Ontario over $300 billion in debt. Mm -hmm. And uh, and during the Wynn administration, the teachers unions had checks cut for them by mm -hmm. the government for millions of dollars and required no spending accountability. Yeah, hey, they got pizzas and hotels and all this grand stuff for, what, $3 million and not a receipt to be found. Um, so, look, will the Ford government bend, buckle? I certainly hope they don't. Um, they have kind of, their biggest problem has always been in messaging. They'll say one thing and then they kind of backtrack and move around on, on the target. Um, and so the consistency, I think, is now, inconsistency is now used against them. I think they have to, to hold strong here. And I get the sense, unlike other job action that we have seen, there is a change in opinion. And I think it might be a sign of the times. You know, people are struggling. We talk about it all the time on our shows. You know, people are living paycheck to paycheck, 
tired, not getting vacations. Um, you know, there was a report just out on uh, manufacturing sector where men mostly are, haven't had a seen a raise in two decades. And they see this kind of work action and they don't relate to it. They say, what is this job guarantee yeah. talk? What is this, you know, you get two, three months off of holidays kind of nonsense. Most people don't have that luxury. So they don't relate to it anymore. And frankly, if the classrooms become so torturous with all this violence, quit. Don't be a teacher, you know? So I think a lot of it is, is rhetoric. I think a lot of it is amped up by the unions. Okay, that's their job. But I do think we have to take a really strong, hard look at costs and education. And the one conversation, Roy, we never hear about are the boards. We have so many boards in this province, which is bloat, bureaucracy. And I, I bet if there was a forensic audit done on the waste at the board level, when you've got five people ordering paper and a pencil pusher signing off, I bet you we'd find billions of dollars of savings that could go to frontline uh, teaching and into the classrooms and into autism and getting proper uh, supports for those families and kids. Yeah. Uh, Alex, uh, I'm going to ask our callers to uh, share their mm-hmm. thoughts on this question in a minute. But I'll ask you first, what do you think your your listeners would say if you asked, maybe you did, whether teaching should be designated an essential service? Oh, in the sense, explain that to me. So, it's, 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 it is, no strikes. No strikes would be allowed. Provincial legislation yeah, absolutely. would pass it. That or give us a choice. Give parents a choice. You know, if if you can't keep education in this province consistent without all these work-to-rule campaigns, job action, and strike action, then the province or whomever's in charge has to then give parents a choice because education, the public education, is a monopoly. And I can't afford a $25,000 private school, but there will be a lot of people that would probably look at charter schools and um, you know would take a tax credit to go put it towards a different kind of education if they had the choice. And that is a conversation I really hope happens at some point. But again, it always comes down to political capital. What are these politicians willing yes. to do uh, for the people of this province uh, when they're not worried about their political capital? Alex, thank you so much for the time. Always great talking to you. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks, Roy. Cheers. Alex Pearson uh, from the Chorus Radio Network in uh, Ontario. Her program airs in Toronto and Hamilton and uh, London, Ontario. My good friend, uh, Mike Smith. uh, Mike Smith News, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Political columnist with Vancouver Province and show host at our great Chorus Radio Station in uh, Vancouver, CKNW joins us. We want to talk about that, Mike. We have a lot to squeeze into the minutes that we have. We'll talk about that. We want to talk about who you think, uh, what's necessary for the Conservative Party to have, uh, as far as a leader is concerned, to appeal for British Columbians, which is critically important to the party. But you yesterday wrote a column and and you tweeted out, and I repeated, I I, I linked both, about the UN anti-racism chair and what he had to say about this country uh, and why don't you pick up the ball there? And thanks for joining us. Well, Roy, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, the the UN Anti-Racism Committee that you're talking about there recently had a report uh, calling for Canada to shut down three major projects in the country, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion, the Site C Dam in British Columbia, and the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, that's about $25 billion worth of projects. And this U.N. committee said shut them down because of uh, opposition from First Nations groups and threats of police violence against protesters. Pretty amazing uh, demand by this U.N. committee. What has emerged here in the last couple of days is that the chair of this U.N. committee, in the case of this natural gas pipeline in northern B.C., the coastal gasoline pipeline, did not know that that pipeline is supported by all 20 First Nations along that pipeline route. There are five hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation who are opposed, and that's what this committee was, they were backing them up, saying shut it down. But I was astonished, and a lot of people are, that this guy would admit, the chair of this UN committee, he did not know that this project has got vast support among First Nations in British Columbia. He didn't know that. And when the Reuters news agency asked him, why didn't you know that, he said the committee is not involved in investigating. 
I mean, you just had to do a Google search on this thing, Roy, to find out there every First Nation along that pipeline route supported that project. So that's a shocker to me. It's stunning, Mike. And yeah. what's really disturbing to me is that this government, our federal government, as we all know, wants to get a seat on the Security Council at the United Nations. And I wonder whether the prime minister has it in him to be really critical of any arm of the United Nations at this particular juncture. And this particular chairman of the Anti-Racism Committee deserves to hear from the Prime Minister of Canada and be addressed by this federal government and told, either do your homework, do your investigation, or shut up. I mean, you know, for this committee to say shut this project down when it's supported by all these First Nations, I mean, there are tons of First Nations people and Indigenous people working on the project. Yes. And the other thing to keep in mind is this pipeline would feed the LNG Canada mega project here in British Columbia. It's the biggest in Canadian history, over $36 billion mega project. And that project is supported by the Heisla First Nation and a whole bunch of other First Nations who have have got revenue sharing agreements and benefit sharing agreements with the company and a lot of Indigenous people working on it. You've got five hereditary chiefs opposed to that pipeline and the UN says shut it down. That's ridiculous. And, uh, Mike, a uh, challenging week for Premier Horgan. First, the Supreme Court of Canada says mm-hmm. no to the, uh, the amended British Columbia environmental legislation concerning TMX. And then the Premier is challenged by hereditary chiefs for not stopping and talking to them when he was visiting the LNG facility. Talk to us about that. How's that Supreme well, Court of Canada ruling r- going over in B.C.? It was not a surprise that the Supreme Court of Canada would just slap the B.C. government down on this because, look, like you said, that pipeline is federal jurisdiction. When it crosses a provincial boundary, that becomes legally known as an interprovincial undertaking. It's federal jurisdiction. British Columbia cannot tell Alberta what to put in that pipe. So it's not surprising at all that the highest court in the land would, would shut this uh, court case down so rapidly. I think it's more than a million dollars of B.C. taxpayers' money went into this thing. It's pure, pure political pandering. The, the, Green, the NDP here in B.C. need the support of the B.C. Green Party to stay in power. That's what this was about. You know what? Alberta's no better. I mean, when Alberta put forward that, that bill to turn off the taps and, and say they were going to punish British Columbia for opposing this pipeline and not send us any more oil and gas, that was doomed to fail, too. That got shot down by the courts as well. So there are, these are political court cases, Roy, in both provinces, and a lot of taxpayers' money has been wasted as a result. Yeah. And you know what surprised me? That BC actually went through. I, I knew they were going to, but it's still at the same time, I felt some degree of surprise, Mike, that they went through to the Supreme Court of Canada because they've been unanimously shut down or slapped down, if you will, by the BC Court of Appeal. Yeah, this has just been lose, lose, lose all the way along, and it was obvious that you didn't have to have a law degree to understand that that pipeline is federal jurisdiction when it crosses a provincial border. So the B.C. government has got no business telling the province of Alberta what to put in that pipe. That is obvious to anyone who's paying attention, but they went ahead with the this law anyway and this court case anyway, Roy, because like I said, it's political pandering. They were trying to get votes from the Green Party, and that's the only reason they did it. They wasted a lot of taxpayers' money in the process. Yeah. And now, the Conservative Party is uh, has started the process of uh, identifying the candidates for leadership of the party, and uh, right. we know the process that's going to take place. Look, as we all know, the uh, the Conservatives swept Alberta, swept Saskatchewan, did reasonably well in British Columbia, I thought. Right. Uh, but they, they would like to grasp more of the British Columbia vote. What do they need to do? What does the leader have to be able to do to convince British Columbians well, that the Conservatives are their choice? Well, like you said, the Conservatives usually do pretty good here in B.C. They didn't do good enough in the last election, though, to get that breakthrough that they needed for Andrew Scheer. So they have to do better. It's kind of strange that British Columbia has not really produced any real high-profile Conservative leaders. We've had, I guess we had Kim Campbell in the past, which she was probably the most disastrous leader the Conservatives ever had, or one of them. You had John Reynolds in there, who was interim leader of the Canadian Alliance once upon a time. Stockwell Day was in there, but his roots were really in Alberta. So we don't really have any prominent conservatives for the leadership here. A lot of people would like would have liked to have seen James Moore step up, step up and run for the federal conservative leadership, but he's probably not. It, it's kind of pathetic that the, the biggest name that comes out of B.C. is Christy Clark, uh, some people suggesting she might run for the conservative leadership. That will not happen, Roy. She's a federal liberal. She's not going to run for the federal conservative party. 
I would say most British Columbians here would like to see a Westerner as the leader of the party. Ronna Ambrose, I think, would get a lot of support here, but maybe she's not going to run. I guess we'll see. Mike, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time and love your columns. And that tweet was just bang on yesterday at Mike Smith News about the U.N. Anti-Racism Committee Chair. What a dolt. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. All the best. You bet, Roy. Thank you. Mike Smith. So we've been talking a bit about the fact that the the Supreme Court of Canada yesterday unanimously said no to the province of British Columbia. No, your amended environmental legislation in which you would control what passes through the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension as it goes from Alberta into British Columbia. No, you cannot decide for yourselves what's going to be transported because that is a federal jurisdiction. British Columbia already knew that, as we talked to Mike Smith about just a minute ago, because the B.C. Court of Appeal had unanimously said no to the Horgan government, and now the Supreme Court of Canada has followed suit, which makes the province of Alberta, I think, feeling quite satisfied about the result by the Supreme Court. In fact, the energy minister for Alberta, Sonia Savage, described the the Supreme Court action as a slapdown of British Columbia. The minister joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Minister Savage, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me today. Did you, uh, did, did Alberta, and, and this is probably an obvious question, but I have to ask it out of the gate, did the B.C. legislation always seem to be to you about shutting down TMX, period? Oh, it was obviously. That was the full intent of the of the legislation, was to, to block the project or to seriously delay it, or to cause so much uncertainty to uh, to have the proponent to have Kinder Morgan back away. It's clear that that was related to their comments in the, the previous previous election to use every tool in the toolbox to uh, to stop it. So it was clearly an unconstitutional attempt to do just that. Okay, so... Get that out of the way, and I know of the tension, we all know in this country, of the tension that started to exist and be publicly displayed between British Columbia and Alberta. Does the Supreme Court decision diffuse the tension between the two provinces, or, or does, is that going to take some time? No, I think it completely diffuses the, the uh, um, tension because it was such a clear and decisive um, decision um, made within an hour of hearing the evidence, which was was remarkable in and of itself. But it was so clear that, uh, you know, one province can't take those kind of steps to block a project that's in the national interest. And it should be a clear, clear direction to BC to stay in your own constitutional lane. This project is proceeding to the national interest. It's federal jurisdiction. So I don't know. I, I think... BC has run out of options, and I think uh, we'll see them move forward with uh, giving permits as they're required to on a timely basis, and not obstruction obstructing the construction of the project. So, what does this decision by the Supreme Court of Canada mean specifically to the economy and the and the prosperity of Alberta, which then becomes the economy and the prosperity of all Canadians? Well, exactly. We had one province trying to shut down a project that was already determined to be in the national interest that was needed, not only for Alberta, but for the country. So Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. And uh, that would apply to other provinces across the jurisdiction, that these projects that get products to market, um, whether it's pipelines, whether it's other commodities and projects, are not uh, something that one province can block. So I think it's, uh, it, it sets it right on what the Constitution uh, requires and what the Constitution was uh, set out over 100 years ago to delineate the jurisdiction and the division of powers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, it shows that the Constitution works and the Supreme Court will, uh, will enforce it. Minister, what concerns do you have about additional challenges from hereditary chiefs and eco-groups and, and do you feel now, as, as of the decision announced by the Supreme Court of Canada, that it will result in an investment uptick for the oil sands? Well, I think it gives us uh, much needed certainty. There's much certainty. And I think, uh, you know, I think the, the other thing, you still see chipping away at the sidelines from the in, environmental opposition. We saw last week, the, you know, the United Nations, their declar- committee declaration calling for the cancellation of 
Trans Mountain and the coastal uh, coastal gas link pipeline. Um, then, then we saw them retreat and say, gee, we didn't uh, have the information and we didn't know that there was Indigenous support for the project. So hopefully that's, uh, that, you know, is a strong sign that United Nations should just uh, butt out of our business. Mm-hmm. It can stick to... Uh, it to something else but uh you know we're gonna we're gonna continue to see environmental opposition chipping away at this i mean it's it's well funded it's uh it's foreign organized and funded so we'll see we'll continue to see that but i think uh what this court decision also does is it shows that the courts will hold uphold the rule of law and uh canadians uh are will uphold the you know agree with that all right let me ask you don't support it. You most Canadians support the rule of law. Yeah, Minister. Let me ask you then: What's the message from Alberta to Quebec Premier Legault and to the Prime Minister? Well, I think these. I think the message is these projects have to go through. They're in the national interest. Alberta needs these projects. The Alberta oil and gas industry supports over five hundred and thirty-three thousand jobs across the country, not just in Alberta, but across the country. It's an important industry. It's an important sector to our economy. And we have to stop this jurisdictional bickering. Um, so, would you? So, is Alberta then? Is Alberta then looking at the the Supreme Court decision and saying to Premier Legault and to Prime Minister Trudeau, look at this decision and start again to evaluate properly with our participation pipelines, new pipelines, or at least one new pipeline in the province or through the province of Quebec toward Tidewater? Well, I think right now we don't have. A- Project, a proponent even proposing an oil pipeline across uh, across Quebec. So uh, when we reach that, if we see another proposal coming through, I think we'll have to address it then. But uh, right now we've got pipelines proposed across British Columbia, and that's what we're focusing on. But what I mean, the Constitution applies everywhere across the country in all provinces. No, I realize there's no specific pipeline proposal for Quebec, but it would be a good idea, I think, to knock on that door and perhaps facilitate such a proposal going forward. If Alberta says to Quebec and to a, the federal government, here, look at the Supreme Court of Canada decision, now get off your duffs and, uh, and, and pardon me, and, and start to consider a pipeline through the province of, uh, of Quebec, that might not be a bad approach. I have 20 seconds for your answer, Minister. Sure. Well, I I would hope that Quebec would be considering that, but right now we have three live pipeline uh, proposals that we still want to see done that we need to get done. They're live. It's uh, TMX, it's Enbridge's Line 3, and it's Keystone XL. We have three pipelines underway. That's what we're focusing on, getting the existing three that have approval in Canada, getting them done and built. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. The uh, Minister of Energy for the province of Alberta, Sonia Savage, on The Roy Green Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.